All right, we're back. This is the part of the program where we often talk about obituaries, something we've shirked our duties on for most of the recent months. We are going to do a um, probably an all-obituary program uh, sometime in the weeks to come and put that on the Internet, make it an Internet-only uh, uh, show for Radio Parallax. But I do want to mention on today's program the passing of baseball great Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn passed away due to an oral cancer, which we know in medicine is related to the use of chewed tobacco. Tony Gwynn, in fact, said that he believed that his cancer was a result of his using smokeless tobacco. We need to talk about this legal carcinogen on the program at greater length than we have time to do today. But it is indeed a a, a daunting thing to see... uh, a superb, healthy athlete like Tony Gwynn succumb to, you know, his use of smokeless tobacco. He was only 54. All right, and uh, although our, our smart-ass comments on last week's program about the, uh, the Washington Redskins apparently failed to enrage anyone, much to my surprise, we do want to go out of our way a bit to show that we certainly respect the contributions that Native Americans have made to... Uh, our society, and in, in, in doing so, cite the passing of Chester Nez. He was the last of America's Navajo code talkers. He died last month, June 4th, at age 93. Turns out his first name was not Chester, nor his surname Nez. The real ones somehow got lost when he was sent away to boarding school, where the white world tried to civilize the rangy eight-year-old who was born to a mother from the Black Sheep Clan, and a father from the Sleeping Rock people. They made him speak English, a language he had never heard. To get rid of the dirty gobbledygook he insisted on using, the matron brushed his teeth with bitter fells naphtha. Luckily for posterity, Chester Nez did not lose his ability to speak the Navajo language, which linguists describe as being <laughs> amazingly complicated. Verbs do most of the work, Uh, Noted the economist, it's agglutinated with suffixes and prefixes in seven modes, including the usitative, iterative, and optative. And no, I have no idea what those mean. Uh, Twelve aspects, I don't know what that means either, such as the semulfactive, a half-completed action, and ten sub-aspects. I don't know. It's all Greek to me. But the point is, this ain't a language you're just going to go out and pick up, which proved very useful during World War II. As The Economist noted, as America struggled to stem the Japanese advance across the Pacific following the disaster of Pearl Harbor, military codes, cumbersome and weak, were proving a fatal weakness. But Philip Johnson, a missionary's son raised on a Navajo reservation, hit on the idea of using a language the Japanese would not crack. Native American tongues had been used for battlefield messages in the First World War. Hitler had even dispatched spies to America in the 1930s to study them in case they would be used again. But Navajo had not been written down, and almost no outsiders spoke it fluently. So the Navajos worked out certain words they would use to describe things and spoke to each other openly on the radio, knowing that they couldn't crack the code. Apparently, Marine commanders were initially skeptical, but a message that took an hour to encrypt, transmit, and decrypt on existing mechanical systems could be transmitted orally by code talkers in 40 seconds. Turned out even America's own code breakers failed to break the code. Turns out that everywhere Marines fought, Navajo code talkers under fire, hoarse, tired, and thirsty, were, were vital in victory. They directed fire, they called in reinforcements, they evacuated the wounded, 
and they warned of enemy movements. Unfortunately for them, gratitude came slowly. Many of the code talkers were unable to talk about their secret wartime work because I guess it was classified and wound up as penniless drunks. In fact, when Private First Class Chester Nez applied for a civilian identity card back in 1945, an official took pleasure in reminding him that he was not a full citizen and could not vote. Amazingly, that did not come about until 1948 in New Mexico. It was only in 1968 after the Code Talker story was declassified did the fame and honors begin, a bit embarrassingly, said Mr. Nez to flow in. Noted the economist, Nez mourned the suffering and injustice of his people's past, but insisted that the Navajo story was ultimately of triumph, not sorrow. And his own life had been 100%. But they noted that it did bother him that his country had tried to stop him from speaking Navajo when it had proved so useful. We definitely want to talk about someone to whom this show owes a great debt of thanks, Felix Dennis. And in truth, till he passed away... We didn't know who he was either, but we should have. Felix Dennis built himself a transatlantic publishing empire. And among the things he produced was The Week magazine, which we've come to rely upon uh, uh, to produce this program since it is such a succinct summary of items found in the news. His obituaries note that he was a somewhat driven individual who in fact noted that what made him happy, and that only occasionally, were modest pleasures. The economist noted that fun and success, however, were another matter. To say he lived high on the hog would be an understatement. By his own estimate, he spent $100 million on drugs, drink, women, and high living. That's just in one decade. The magazine noted that he had 14 mistresses on his personal payroll. He once said, if it floats, flies, or fornicates, it's better to rent than to buy. It's widely acknowledged that... uh, His publishing genius lay in spotting gaps in the market and launching titles to fill them. The Week, for example, was a lively digest of other outlets' content. Its huge success in America confounded cynics who thought the magazine market there was moribund. In fact, when he launched the American version of the magazine back in 2001, the Wall Street Journal rather predictably asked, Is Felix Dennis mad? Well, in his private life, he may have been a bit mad. The Daily Telegraph said that the success of Dennis Publishing, quote, funded a lifestyle of unrestrained hedonism. He divided his time between properties in England, America, and the Caribbean island of Mustique, where he bought David Bowie's house. He devoted much of his life to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, along the way becoming addicted to crack cocaine. Noted the week, incredibly, none of this significantly impaired his business sense. He said, quote, I built a NASDAQ company turning over $2.5 million dollars while on crack, unquote. Referring to his U.S.-based computer mail order firm, he said, you can get a lot done if you don't have to waste time sleeping. But evidently his drug-induced paranoia eventually became a little bit too much. In 1996, he went cold turkey. So the tipping point came when he found himself skulking around the house with a hammer, preparing to hit an imaginary CIA bastard coming in through the skylight. I caught myself in the mirror, he said, and I thought, bastard? Skylight? There is no bastard. There is no skylight. And why am I walking around with this hammer? But perhaps most amazingly at all, in 1999, while recovering in a hospital from serious thyroid illness, Dennis began writing poetry on post-it notes. He found it enjoyable, and it turned out he had a knack for it. The Economist noted that the whole thing seemed like a rich man's folly at first. He paid his publisher to produce the first volume of poetry and toured the country by helicopter to give public readings. 
The promise of free and rather good wine apparently brought pundits flocking, and they liked what they heard. The poetry books flew off the shelves just as fast as his magazines did. And Dr. Andy, if you're listening, we have to talk about this. This is a life we have to explore more fully, I think, on this program. Uh, Back in 1970, Felix Dennis gained notoriety by invading David Frost's television show and squirting the host with a water gun and uttering a profanity that was heard live. This apparently led to his mother not speaking to him for the next three years. He then apparently published a sexually explicit cartoon featuring beloved children's book characters, which got him arrested and charged with a conspiracy to corrupt public morals. This became a, a cause celeb for the hippie counterculture, and no less than John Lennon and Yoko Ono recorded a protest song to raise cash for his legal defense. We just love little details like the fact that the judge gave Dennis a shorter sentence on the basis that his, quote, older and more intelligent, unquote, co-defendants had led him astray. What a guy. Felix Dennis, we thank you for, uh, for the week and all that you've done for us. And I believe that marks the first posthumous thanking for a, quote, guest, unquote, on this program's history which is a good way to end. This show was produced by Edward McMillan, as they all are. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. On next week's program, we hope to again speak with Tyler Blythe about his new Davis establishment, The Root of Happiness, which we're pretty sure is the first kava bar in the history of Yolo County. And the week after that, we hope we'll be speaking with Jay Barbary, NBC News space correspondent, about his new book, Neil Armstrong, A Life of Flight. We'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>